dream for a long time since I started learning about the Methodists and John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and all of that. Chose it as my kind of uh, frame of reference for being a Christian. You know, we haven't talked about it in quite a few weeks because we were all kind of weary, but we are still Methodists. We, we are Christians doing our Christian living and worshiping together in a Wesleyan way or a Methodist way. And I've had this dream for a long time about a place called the Foundry. Now, when John Wesley began preaching in the open air, it was because the Anglican church was put off by his radical ideas. I mean, seriously. Isn't being a member of the Church of England enough? Why, why would you tell people that they need to be born again in the Holy Spirit? Why would you tell people that there should be a living expression of a changed nature in them because of their relationship with Christ? Why would you tell people such a thing? They've got a church to go to. They've got a tradition to practice. They've got people to hang out with that are like them. Why would you mess things up by trying to invite radical transformation and, and overt expressions of a new life in Christ? Why would you do that? And so they would let him preach inside the Church of England. So he started preaching outside. One time he preached from his own father's grave. I mean, literally stood on top of the box his body was in and preached from the top of the grave. He preached from tree stumps. He preached on little hills and rises wherever you could find them. And this all worked out really well and revival broke out all over the land because, because he invited people to have a spiritual transformation and not just a religious affiliation. But the weather got cold in 1739, and by the way, it's a very interesting uh, weather history little side note there. Um, there has been evidence and suggestions that for several years, almost a decade or two around that time, there was a sort of mini ice age, and that's part of the reason that the uh, soldiers of Valley Forge had such a rough go of it. Side note, if you're into that sort of thing, and so they needed to get inside, but they weren't welcome inside the church. And Wesley became aware of a building, a foundry actually, that had been abandoned not far from London. And this building was a foundry up until uh, about 23 years earlier when an explosion occurred and it killed the owner and his sons and all of the craftsmen who knew how to do such things and a public official. So business ended that day. And the building was sitting abandoned for 23 years. And John and Charles acquired the building and made about 800 pounds or dollars worth of improvements, which is quite a bit of money in those days, given by donors and were able to make the building warm and dry, but it was still basically a foundry. It seated 1,500 people in the front part and then another 300 people in the back part, but it was still a foundry. It was still a foundry. And that became the heart and soul of the Methodist movement 
from that point forward. So I've had this dream ever since that we could have a place to worship that we would call a foundry. It's always been my passion. I like the whole concept. Everything about it excites me. That the foundry would be a place that doesn't come across like a church or a religious gathering place. It would come across as a place where things are transformed. That's exactly what happens in a foundry, right? Things are transformed in a foundry. Raw materials are transformed into molten steel or, or, or iron and so forth, and then transformed into something that will be useful. How ironic that the cannon foundry blew up <laughs> and then became a place where souls were transformed. We went from creating instruments in that building used for killing to instruments for bringing eternal life. So I've always had this passion. I've always thought about, I will confess that five years ago, I took one look at that big empty box down there we call the Shiloh Life Center. And some of you, I'm looking at Dave and Becky because you remember this. I remember looking at it and thinking, what a big empty box. It's gonna cost so much to keep it climatized and why aren't we using it every day for something? And then this vision came to my mind again. Well, what if it was a foundry? What if it was a place that was more than what it appeared to be and anything but what it was imagined to be? How would that change the world? How would we change our community by offering a place where people could be changed forever? And it was not like church. It was not the Church of England. It was not the place where religious activity formed and framed your sense of who you are as a Christian, but instead was a place where you were forged and, and poured, forging and foundry are two different things. But both in, in, in my mind are places where raw materials are made and shaped through heat and fire, through the the removal of dross. You know what blew up the cannon factory, by the way? There was some water in the bottom of the mold. You can't have any impurities when you pour molten steel or you'll have an explosion. And so you have to be cleaned. You have to be shaped. You have to remove the dross. You have to remove the ugliness. And that kind of leads me to our passage for today. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 12 now, starting at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came to Jesus and, uh, excuse me, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, that is people debating with Jesus, and noticed that Jesus had given them a good answer. And so he asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus said the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. 
And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So not all Pharisees were bad. And we have a tendency to think that when we, when we read scripture and we have a tendency to think uh, pretty ill of them because some of them were, were really hard on Jesus and some participated in trying to eliminate Jesus. And yet there were many who approached him with an open heart and mind willing to hear what he had to say and to consider the possibility that he might be the Messiah. And this was such a case because this gentleman who goes unnamed is asking a fair question. And he's asking it with wisdom. And he's saying to Jesus, hey, I just want to understand where you're coming from because you say that you are not here to eliminate the law, but to affirm the law and to introduce a new and better covenant. And so explain yourself. And Jesus gives what would be considered a very perfectly orthodox answer to any good Jew. And you have a look at it on the screen here. See, this confession, the Lord our God is one and this is the only God, that's the primary thing. And that's because there is an understanding from the very beginning of Scripture and in all of Judeo-Christian belief that there are other gods. There are lesser gods and many of them are opposed to our God the one and only God, Yahweh, the one who is and was and always will be the creator of everything. And so there's this understanding that these false gods and some very powerful evil entities are out there, but there is one God, the one and only true God. And that is the one from whom Jesus comes, the one he calls Father, the one with whom he says, the Father and I are one. And so what Jesus is saying, in effect, is is the number one rule is that there is only one God. And oh, by the way, you're talking to him. (laughs) That's basically what he's saying. And then he says, but living without that expression relating to your fellow man or your human, uh, humanity and, and other created people lo- leaves you falling short. So to put it another way, the Pharisees were really good at loving God with all their heart, mind, and soul. They were really good at holding the letter of the law and living in a very righteous way. Some more self-righteous and sanctimonious than others, but many living in a very righteous and good way and truly seeking the Messiah. And he would say to them, basically, as he said to this guy, you, you are almost there. You are almost there. Because the one thing that you lack is love for your neighbor. You feel that if you love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and everything in your, every fiber of your being, that you and God are really tight. But God says, if you're really tight with me, you got to really be tight with my people. And the Bible is really explicit in both the Old and the New Testament about how much God desires that God's people would be at peace with one another, like a family of God. You parents, do you have children that uh, are at each other's throats over something? You know, I've been to a lot of funerals in the 
many years I've been in ministry and I've seen funerals where people who probably shouldn't get together got together because they had to. <laughs> and then I wondered how long it would be before the police showed up. Doesn't that break your heart as a parent to imagine your children not being able to get along with each other? Doesn't it break your heart to see people that you have this particular bond with through conception and birth and growth and doing life together in all of its various trials and joys and, and then to see them not be at peace with each other? And so the Lord wants us to understand that there is nothing that breaks his heart like Christian people and Jewish people in this context who don't have at least some sort of grace for each other. If there's nothing else we can do, we must be at least at peace with each other. We should not get angry because we didn't get our way. We shouldn't storm out because we didn't get our way. We shouldn't look at each other in this family of faith God has made us as, as enemies or people that we just can't live with. This really breaks God's heart. But this goes further now. What Jesus is saying very plainly is, is that it's not enough that you would be at peace with each other in God's family, but that you would be a friend to the neighbor, to the community. And this brings me back to the foundry. You see, the foundry was created as a place that wasn't tied to a particular system of religion. It wasn't tied to any particular religious identity at all. It was a place where people came to hear the word of God, where they came expecting to be changed by the word of God. And they left changed by the word of God. And so then their teachers, their elders, like the Wesley brothers, would then give them guidance and instruction on what to do with this new life that they had in Christ, this new identity, having been born again in the Holy Spirit. And so Wesley and his associates went out of their way to instruct them on the importance of going to classes where you could learn together more in depth the word of God in scripture and in other expressions. And then to go together in even more intimate relationships, they would call bands, but really we're talking about a small group of men or women uh, in a sort of three to four maybe people where we were really honest about our relationship with God and each other, where we held each other accountable for living a new, completely changed life by the Holy Spirit. They gave them instruction on how to express this new life in Christ that looked like the uh, good works that they recommended. They were adamant that your good works didn't save you or guarantee your relationship with God, but simply that they were an a natural expression of what God had done in you that you would have this same compassion for a people that Christ has when he sees them. I shared with you several weeks ago about how when my friend Frank Viola was here, he and I wound up in a place that would be unlikely for your pastor and unlikely for a man of God like Frank, and yet there we were, and all I could think while I was there was how much I cared about those people. 
I'm not boasting. I'm saying that it's part of this changed nature that has occurred in me. I just can't help it. I just can't help it. And so maybe you wonder, what am I supposed to do, Dan, if I'm coming to church and I'm doing everything regularly like, like I do and I don't feel like it's really changed me? Let me just ask you, have you changed in the way you think about the world, in the way you think about your fellow Christians here in this family of faith and the way you feel about the people in your community? Do you feel an irresistible urge to love them? to make sacrifices for their sake and believe that these sacrificial acts of love and grace and mercy might somehow invite them to explore what changes a person that way anyhow. This is where we have to go in the future of this church if we want to grow and thrive in the future as this new thing God is making us, as we stand on the advent of a new thing here at Shiloh. And what does that mean? Well, it means that you have to be broken down like the raw materials that go into the crucible in the foundry. That's what you're looking at in this picture. It's a crucible. And in the crucible, things get boiled as hot as they have to be to be broken down into the raw material. And the dross or the, the unpure things comes to the surface and the craftsmen very carefully remove the dross from the surface so that it doesn't contaminate what's being made. And then it's poured into a mold and made into something new. The foundry does that. So I'm not proposing that we rename the church or anything like that. I'm proposing that we rethink who we are and what we're here to do. I'm proposing that in our minds and our hearts, as we move forward as a family of faith together, we see this place as a foundry. Where loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul is immediately accompanied by love for neighbor. And it begins with the neighbor in the pew. It begins with the neighbor in your Sunday school class. And then it becomes a very intimate brotherly love, or in the case of women, a sisterly love of the Christian family, where we have intimate and convicting conversations about living for the name of Christ. And then together we do works, and we say things that transform our community because we are disciples of Jesus Christ. You know, we saw that here last night, right outside those windows, right over there. Right outside those windows, about 30 or so of us served about 600 of our neighbors with a little bit of fun. We gave them candy. We gave them conversation. We gave them welcome. We gave them a lot of hot dogs. What did we figure, about 400? <laughs> and we were surrounded by servants of our community, like the local police. We were surrounded by neighbors who didn't even speak the same language most of us speak here today. And they all came here for a little grace and a little joy. And we know better than ever how much the world will change on a dime with things the way they are nowadays. And so it's not hard to imagine that a week from now, we might all be in some way perplexed and anxious and some will remember 
a few hours of joy in the church parking lot just when they need it most. So I'm proposing that we begin now to let the Lord take whatever this place called Shiloh is and reduce it down to its rawest elements and then remove the impurities and shape it into, of all things, a foundry. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts so that we truly are changed forever by your divine nature. Amen. Amen.